Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, conversations on healthcare reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and today we have the privilege of having Lori Russell with us. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thanks for having me. Lori is the Executive Director for Aspire Developmental Services, a nonprofit organization based on the North Shore, which focuses on providing early intervention services for children. She also serves on the reopening committee for the state of Massachusetts. Lori, we're so excited to talk more about the shifts in the state policies regarding opening services in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and get your thoughts on that. But first, could you just tell us a little bit about your career journey and your current role at Aspire? Absolutely. So I have been in the early childhood field for 25 years and began in East Boston early intervention, working with children birth to three with developmental delays and really found a love and passion for working with children in a in a inner city population that really needed additional services to thrive long term in the educational system. And about 15 years ago, I came to work for the program here in Lynn and just fell in love with the community and the 10 towns that this program serves and really um, found a significant passion in um, working with the families and helping support staff in my new role as a executive director here over the past few years. Thanks so much, Lori. Can you just tell us a little bit more about Aspire? You know, what is the mission and what are you striving to do in these communities? Here at Aspire, our mission is to serve children birth through five that really could use additional support in the early stages of development. So that way, as they move through the educational system and eventually become adults within our society, that they have the basic foundational learning and to give them an even start with others that may not have developmental delays or be at risk. Wonderful. And I mean, I know just with there have been so many changes probably in the way that you're delivering these services um, in light of the pandemic. And can you talk to us through like what have normal operations look like? And I use normal loosely, but what has the day-to-day been like for you guys? Well, it's, it's, every day is very different. And in the early days of the pandemic, we tr- transitioned from a historically face-to-face, in-person, home-visiting model and pivoted very quickly in the matter of days to a virtual telehealth model. And that service delivery was a challenge not only for our staff who needed to learn a whole different service modality, to um, as well as for our families who for many did not have um, devices to access virtual learning they did not have the wi-fi or the technology knowledge on how even if they had the device on how to access community services that way so we very quickly shifted and did a lot of training with our staff so that they had the knowledge and devices and training support to then provide one-on-one support to their families. And in the early days in March, we did do some um, 
in-person trainings and getting families set up with Zoom and Skype and other modalities so that way they were able to continue services. And as the pandemic continued, we remained on telehealth for several months and in mid-June began re-engaging in-person face-to-face visits for those families who either were unable to access services for those three months or if they were ready to resume in-person visits within the community, we were able to jump on and do that as well. Currently, we're doing a hybrid model of both high, of both virtual, whether it's through Zoom or um, Teams, or we're doing in-person within the community. Did you see any, um, like, do you feel like that there were um, any any insights that you were able to share from just how your how your team's experiences were in in delivering these services, you know, over telehealth after mostly doing them in person? You know, can you share with us what were some of their reactions or or how did that go for them? It was a challenge. You know, we went from I think a lot of us who get into the early childhood field really thrive off of that engagement with families. And it's very different doing it over a virtual platform. So for those of us who really enjoy the hands-on teaching to shift to a 100% coaching model, where you're providing strategies and modeling for parents or caregivers to carry out the activities 100%, That was a huge shift for us and it felt very foreign in the beginning. And so we relied a lot on our supervision activities to help support staff and educate families that they have always been the primary teachers for their children. But when you're face to face, it feels a little, it's a little more casual, it's a little bit more comforting and and switching to a virtual platform was was very, was very foreign for a lot of them. And so it was definitely a struggle, but I think in the end, it's giving us a great platform to jump back into in-person visits and and being more comfortable with a coaching model. So that way, as we re-engage families, they still understand that they are the ones who are with their children seven days a week. And for us coming in for an hour, to provide some activities around communication or social emotional development, is great and it's extremely valuable, but on having a parent be able to carry over, carry over those activities every day is is really the the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm curious. I I, um, I I feel like I've read and heard about you know with with some of these changes that there have been some real benefits in addition to the things that you named, and one of them being. Um, just the difficulty sometimes of even engaging families in these visits um, to begin with. And and so is there anything that you have seen among your teams that um, that other benefits that you've seen in that family engagement, even with the, the actual meetings and being present for them? Yes. I mean, I think that if we're being honest, when we're out in the field pre, pre-COVID times, you know, I think we were often utilized as, um, you know, we came in and we worked one-on-one with the child in isolation, you know, sort of, and that we were the teachers and we were there to teach the child. And a lot of times parents were um, standoffish or they, they may have observed from a distance and they weren't necessarily active participants in the full session. 
switching to a virtual platform, they had to be. And I think it, it was a great bridge to um, engage families in a different level of service delivery, which ultimately is, is the goal. And I think that long term, we will see that that is most beneficial for the early intervention population, um, even if it felt different for, for the period of time of learning it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I want to pivot just a little bit and um, talk about your role on the reopening committee for the state. Um, so what does that role entail? What what does that look like? And then I would love to get into a little bit of the, um, the things you've been thinking about for your own center as a result of some of the new regulations. Sure. So I was on the... Um, ICC Committee for Re-Engagement. Um, EI actually never officially closed because we are considered essential workers, but we did um, obviously pivot to a telehealth platform for quite some time. And as we are re-engaging community visits, I, I did sit on um, the opening committee for that. And, you know, I think that it's very interesting. We also at Aspire had the unique experience of being a emergency childcare center. So we not only did early intervention never shut down, we remained, our facility remained open every day of the pandemic to provide emergency childcare for essential and frontline workers. So as centers were beginning to reopen their their site-based locations at Aspire, we had never closed. So we definitely were looked to to provide um, our firsthand experience and what it was like to have children in the building every day, communicating with families, um, making sure that we had PPE and that we our staff that were working understood the risk that, that they had and that we were providing communication to our families and our community providers. And so that was that was my role as far as um, being on the committee was was having that firsthand experience of remaining a, a site location open and having staff here every day. So I think that that was extremely helpful and valuable because we were able to do it, and it was on a smaller scale than our typical childcare, but it kept us. Um, it kept us aware of not only the risks, but also the benefit of being able to have a place for children to go during the pandemic that I think many people seem to forget that essential workers still needed childcare in order for them to work at the hospital, to work at the grocery stores, um, to work in other childcare centers. They needed a place for their children to go. Mm -hmm. Well, and, um, you know, from everything you've told us with just your background and your experience and, and how long you've been serving this community, I know that you think very deeply about the societal impacts that the pandemic will have. And you're seeing some of those things now. But um, Lori, what are some of the other main concerns that you have right now for some of those those larger impacts that we may see over time? Well, I have always been concerned about the educational inequity across the state. Um, different districts, even different schools within districts, and how we prioritize education in Massachusetts or in the country. And I think what I'm most concerned about at this point, as far as looking forward in the educational systems, are the educational gaps and inequities that are continuing to grow and are only going to get more significant as the weeks turn to months and potentially years. 
And right now, as districts across the Commonwealth are looking at their reopening plans, I am very concerned that some districts will um, move to a more 100% virtual platform. And as we know from this experience, that is not equitable district to district. And I am concerned about the availability for early childhood seats, as we call them, place, placements for children with individualized educational needs. And they were already at a shortage. And I think coming out of the pandemic, we're going to see an educational crisis among early childhood learners. And that we'll see a gap of children who did not access not only preschool, which has been a significant problem, but I am very concerned that kindergarten may be at risk where it is not a mandatory requirement for districts to provide full day kindergarten. And in some of the districts that we serve, kindergarten is essential to give, sometimes it is the child's first opportunity to learn outside their home or to learn in a group setting. And I think if we start thinking about what education looks like without kindergarten or preschool, I think it's going to look very different in an already significantly um, inequitable system. Yeah, right. Well, and, you know, I think just to, con to continue to connect the dots, you know, for some of our listeners who may not be aware of the significant changes that you have to make to day-to-day -day operations, um, I think it would be so great if you could talk through just a few of the things that, you know, the regulations that are being passed down to make sure people are safe and that the kids that are in your building are safe. What are some of those changes that you guys are having to make? And then we can talk through like what those, con like the consequences of those things are. But first, what are just some of those day-to-day -day changes that, that I know that you're having to consider and think about? Sure. So when childcare programs, traditional childcare programs were allowed to reopen at the end of June, our ratios, so our student to child ratios changed significantly. And the square footage that our licensing allows per child increased. What that means at the program level is that for programs that may have been able to have 20 children, 20 preschoolers with two staff in it historically may now, based on square footage, only be able to have 15. Where do those other five children go? Well, right now, programs are faced with the decision of eliminating spots because in order to comply with their license, they can't have as many children in their program. There are a lot of implications to that. You know, we can look at the the, the basic of now five children in that scenario are out of preschool. And if we're thinking of this as a systemic change, whether it's temporary or a long-term, where do those five children go? They can't go to the center down the street because they're under the same restrictions. So we're looking at a loss of childcare slots, preschool slots, kindergartens, private kindergarten spots uh, statewide. And in addition to that, we're looking at the financial ramifications of lost revenue at the program level with increased expenses for PPE and staffing. So I think the implications are huge. And I think that from a, from a macro level, we look at, of course, we know we need social distancing. We know that we need to restructure classrooms so that children are not 
on top of each other at a center activity, which is something that we've strived for for years to get away from tables and chairs and really get hands on learning in these many centers. Well, this pandemic is pushing us in the opposite direction. It's pushing us to get children further apart physically and to, to limit some of that interacting that is so critical in the early years of learning. So, I, you know, I think that while there's the, the medical science supports the social distancing, I think with the restrictions in place, we're looking at a crisis without if we don't have additional slots within the communities. Right. And, and Lori, that's so helpful to just kind of, again, break down what the new regulations actually mean and then the, the consequences to them. Um, so what I'm curious, you know, as somebody, as an executive director of the, an organization like this, um, what are some of the things that you're thinking through for how to accommodate these changes and um, try not to widen the gaps? I mean, obviously, there's only so much you can do. But what are some of the things that Aspire is thinking about? So right now, Aspire was fortunate that we had the square footage prior to the pandemic because we're in, our, in a newly renovated building within the last five years that we were able to maintain our pre-COVID spots. So we were not required to reduce um, based on our licensing for square footage because we were able to keep the same amount of children. As we look into the future, you know, we're considering expanding our child care to offset the loss that the city of Lynn or surrounding towns are going to face as the uh, restrictions sort of trickle down and programs decide whether or not to reopen. Many child care programs on the North Shore have decided not to reopen because fiscally they can't balance the loss. I mean, opening financially on a loss is something that most of us are facing in the early childhood world. And as we wait for the public schools to make their decisions, we also are anticipating the trickle down effect. So if, you know, children are losing out on potentially kindergarten, then they're going to be looking for private kindergarten, which is going to limit the preschool spots. If the childcare in if the special ed child care gets narrowed down, then more children will be looking for preschool spots. So as we look to the future, I think I, I vision an expansion of our child care because we do have the space due to some changes within our early intervention system. And I think that we will see the need grow exponentially. And I'm hoping that Aspire can, can step in and help um, alleviate some of that educational gap for some of the students. Right. Well, and I mean, those are all such great um, things to share about what you guys are doing. And, you know, for, for some, let's say there are some other organizations that are similar to yours that are, are listening to this right now. Do you have um, any um, insights or advice for others for how providers could revamp their programs and operations um, in the upcoming months, just based on some of the lessons you've learned? You know, I think that reopening is is scary for it's scary for our staff. It's scary for our families, um, but it is a necessity for a lot of people. People do need childcare. They need special education. They our workers need jobs, and I think that it can be it can be a challenge. But I can tell you that 
the children who come to the center are so happy to be here with the social distancing and the PPE and all of the restrictions that have made it feel very foreign to us as adults has been has been very okay for our children because they thrive when they're with their peers. And yes, it does feel different. You know, there's nothing like seeing a whole class with their masks on <laughs> trying to make their way out to the playground. <laughs> but behind those masks are really big smiles and you can see it in their eyes and they are so happy to be here because it's a mm -hmm. sense of normalcy for them. And they're learning and they're doing everything that they're, they're bodies and brains want to do this this is what comes natural to them and for our staff you know and for people who are considering reopening i think there's as as much as stress of comes along with reopening i think there is a sense of relief of doing something that people love and and you know it all comes with challenges but i think that um, people can reinvent what they do and they can tweak it a little bit. And in the end, it, um, it does feel right for most. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more with you. I think that there is something about resuming, um, a sense of normalcy, even, um, safely. And while, you know, practicing distance and, um, adhering to regulations that, um, just does bring so much um, peace and rest and joy, you know, to the children and the communities. And even as a parent, I just, I think that it's something that, um, that we should strive for safely and wisely, of course. But if we're doing those things correctly, if we are adhering to the safety and practice guidelines, there is still a real opportunity, like you said, for the connection, you know, in spite of the being distanced. Um, we are nearing the end of our time, um, and I guess I just, any any other thoughts you have for what's next for you and what's next for Aspire? Well, you know, I just think here at Aspire, we all are just going to keep rolling with it. I think it's our philosophy as an agency, and we are here to meet the needs of the community, and as the needs of the community change, so will we, and I think it's something that is just at the core of our mission and our and our agency philosophy and I think it will just keep evolving and as the needs change program will change programs will change and um, you know I think I think there's a lot of work to be done and we're here to do it so that is what I see in the next couple of years for us wonderful well Lori thank you so much for being on our show we're so glad that we were able to have you today thank you for having me Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautam. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.